Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast, where we look at science and innovation and entrepreneurship. Today we have Robert, the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Biotech Council, you know, Boston, of course. For many years, he was a Commonwealth of Massachusetts representative for like four years. And like I said, he was already a president and CEO. And in this episode, we get a great sense of who he is as a person. Like you get get a lot of that passion that he, he speaks with. You can see how he became an elected official. You can see how he became a president and CEO, just like that drive that he has to help his son out and other people like his son. And I think this is an excellent episode for someone who, for someone who, you know, has a loved one who's been affected by some type of medical illness and thinks, you know, what can you do? And I think Robert is a good case example of what you can do, how much like action you can take to demand attention and demand that things happen. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you like it, don't like it, whatever, you know, let me know. Let's get into this. I'm going to, I'm going to read off the, my, this quote, because I, I have a horrible memory. So Einstein said, if I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on the solution, I would spend the first 55 minutes figuring out the question and the last five answering the, this is what I get from looking away. The first 55 minutes determine the proper question to ask for one. I know the proper question. I can solve the problem in less than five minutes. And Janus Selleck, he's the inventor of polio or discovered it, said that what people think of as a moment of discovery is really the discovery of the question. And so with someone who's had such a long and really interesting career in their life, I'm curious, does, A, does this resonate with you, that idea that like, like the question comes first and takes a really long time to figure it out? And then B, what... It, what is the question that kind of drives your life? That makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that hits home both personally and professionally. When Dr. Jonas Salk was talking about eradicating polio, people were at that time were trying to figure out how do we make a better iron lung. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't want to make a better iron lung. He wanted to create a therapy that would cure the disease. And cure is a very powerful word. In fact, when I started on board at MassBio over 11 years ago, I came to this industry because just by way of background, I used to be a politician. Don't hold that against me. I'm in complete recovery and remission now. But when I was in government, I had a son. My wife and I had a child with cystic fibrosis. So for us, our life was flipped over and turned on its head. And I realized that as a politician, as a lawmaker, In the Massachusetts legislature, there were things that I could do from a policy standpoint that would help people find a way to save my kid's life. I also found on the contrary to that, on the flip side to that, that bad policy could happen and make it harder for scientists and hospitals and universities to do amazing science. So for me... For the last 16 years, since the day my son was born, 16 plus years, I want people to think outside the box. I want people to flip it upside down on its head and say, let's not build a better eye and lung. Let's figure out a way to really solve that problem, change the course of that disease, and in some cases, cure disease. Like I was saying earlier, 10 years ago, board members of mine would advise me, be careful how much you use the cure word, because think about it. The biopharma industry in Massachusetts, we would, and even the, the entire pharma life sciences industry from around the world, we typically would invent medicine, a pill, something that could treat symptoms, you know, to make symptoms of something go away. But now 
in, in this, this, I don't even say that this is the golden age of, of discovery. This is really the platinum age because we're talking about breakthrough therapies that change the course of disease, that treat the underlying cause of disease, and in some cases, actually cure disease. This is amazing time. And I think the last time we could think of, you know, just a couple of years ago, we were able to come up with a, 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 a therapy that eradicates hepatitis C, right? I mean, when was the last time before that? It probably was polio, right? So this is a great day, a great time for science. And I think we need to celebrate it. And I think we also got to start paying attention to some of the roadblocks ahead. And, I, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, the... I agree. I agree with all your points. Sometimes I try and think of ways to disagree with people so we can debate each other. But uh, I, yeah, I, yeah the, no, I have to uh, like 100% agree. The, uh, there was a, a, something you said earlier about things we can do. Now, I'm trying to remember the question, like jogging it. It was like, um, I hate it knowing when you have a question and then like goes away because you're like got so engrossed what someone was saying because you're, you're a very good speaker. So well, the, I'm sorry I kept speaking. Maybe I should pause a little bit more. So no, 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 no. No, I liked what you were saying. I liked what you were saying. Uh, <laughs> I felt uh, like I was on a roll, Lowell. Yeah, yeah, no. Going? Yeah, no, no, it's a good thing. It's more a negative on my part for not writing it. No, normally, if it's a good question, I'll write it down. But uh, so the, I'm going to have to move on. I hate it when I have, it'll come back to me later. We got time. Let's go. Let's move on. We'll come back. Yeah, yeah. The, um, well, okay, I remember it. So the, Biotechnology, and this is the thing that I think is kind of crazy, is that biotechnology is not an old field. Like in the, in the, as like a discipline, it really started in the 70s. Like when most people think of biotechnology medicine, they think, oh, it's probably been around it's, you know, for a couple hundred years, like or as long as the scientific method has been around. But really, it's only been around since like the 70s. And the first thing they did was basically genetic engineer, I think yeast or bacteria or something like that to make uh, insulin. So like the first thing was some type of engineering. I, I agree with you though that I remember my fighting champ thought now. I agree with you because it's like I think I think now is like the perfect time to be alive because we have all these new technologies coming out like CRISPR and these other ways of detecting issue issues and, and stuff that's going on so that we can it's like it's like you know that saying it we live in an interesting time. It's all it's like a, a positive thing, it's also a bad thing because there's so many opportunities to resolve conflict, like uh, you know, genetic illnesses are on the rise. Um you know, global warming, whatever these things. I think people my age, they, they try to find things to do. And sometimes they think, hey, I don't know what to do. Because um, there's so many, so many choices. We have the internet and whatnot. You can learn anything. But I think it's a positive thing because there's so many problems. Like you can find something to help out the world. And if, if you don't do that and you go the rest of your life and you don't do something, then you'll know it. Because like when you, when, you know, like uh, some old people will say when I was a kid, like certain things were cheaper, which is true. Like, you know, things got cheaper. Well, if we don't do right, if we don't push the envelope, the world will be different. Like people will not be as healthy. People will not have these cures and thinking different. You know, it's, it's a very hard thing to do, but I'm very excited for this time to be alive because it's, it's very biased at the same time, maybe like a hundred years from now, it'd be even more exciting that you never know. But I just, uh, I definitely agree with your, your comment there though. Yeah. The, the, I think I had a the similar trajectory to you where I was kind of doing one thing. I was in college and then an illness hit me and it kind of made me go into the more of the science, like the hard sciences, sciences. And so when I first was in that situation, it was kind of hard for me to ask for help. And even now, like when I think about it, I try not to talk about it too much because I, I don't know, I kind of blame myself, but it doesn't make sense. But I'm curious, like, was it ever hard for you to ask for help? 
when, when you were going through those difficulties? And if so, like, how do you get past that? Because I think it's, it's a problem a lot of people have. Like, people want to get started, but they don't know how to ask for it in a respectful way. Like, you have some people that'll just, like, email bombard you, and it's, you can tell, like, that maybe they didn't do their homework. But then you have people that are, like, more thoughtful and are like, hey, I've researched everything about you. I'm trying to get started. Like, how do I do this? Like, but I'm curious, did you, did you also have that difficulty? Or were you at the time in your life where you knew how to ask that question? Well, you know, I was kind of a, I've always been a type A personality and kind of an aggressive person, I guess, for the lack of, lack of better terms. And when I was in government, you know, I learned that there were things that I really could do to help sick people. And I was really proud of that as a, as a, the dad of somebody that had a fatal generic genetic disorder, I was proud and willing to talk about it. Some people can't, be public about things like that. They might be of a more personal nature. It might be difficult emotionally for them to talk about those things. For me, I found that it was helpful. For my wife, she wasn't like that. My wife wanted to spend more time loving this new baby, caring for him, and spending time with him while he was at the most healthiest point of his life. For me, being a fixer, I said, you know, forget that. I'm going to go out and I'm not saying I was right or she was right. I think we were both right in different ways, but I said, I'm going to go out. I'm going to try to change laws so that really smart people have a better chance of saving our kids life. And then someone called me, uh, someone who I'm a dear friend with still today. And he's a very prominent local business person by the name of Joe O'Donnell. And Joe had a son with CF that died. And Joe called me and he said, he started the Joey Fund to raise money to invest in research for cystic fibrosis. But Joe called me up and he said something that still to this day sticks in my mind. And it's, it's become part of who, who I am and why I do what I do. Joe said to me, uh, Bob, we're going to go out and we're going to raise a lot of money. And we're going to go buy. We're going to go buy a cure for your kid. So he doesn't die like my kid did. So I took a step back and I was thinking about what Joe said to me. He said, we have to go buy a cure for my kid. You know, picture this 16 years ago, having a little baby that was with, diagnosed with a disease that he's going to die from. And I said, why would we have to buy that cure? Don't doctors just do it? Don't hospitals and doctors invent these medicines? Mm -hmm. I was ignorant as to the work, the science, the money, the investment, the clinical trials, the years, the failures that are involved with inventing a new medicine or therapy. And again, we didn't say cure back then. I, I, I did. I said, I want a cure for this disease. But, you know, I think people who worked in the industry thought I was being a little far-fetched. But lo and behold... Let's look at what's happening today in today's day and age. And let's fast forward. And Joe O'Donnell and the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and parents like myself and many, many others. And I talk to so many parents on a, on a monthly basis, whether they are newly diagnosed with children with cystic fibrosis or people that have Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Rett syndrome, uh, Huntington's disease. I talk to so many of these families to give them guidance and tell them that, hey, this isn't the end of the world. Let's look at the positive. You can work. You can raise money. And I say what Joe said to me. I said, guess what? You got to raise money and go out and buy 
innovation. You're going to buy science. You're going to buy a cure for your loved one's disease, and it will work. I, let's fast forward now. My kid's 16 years old. Vertex Pharmaceuticals has invented three drugs in the CF space. None of them work for my kid yet, and that sucks. See, I, see, I don't know if I can say that, but that stinks. And that does stink, but the next one, I think it's going to work for him. And it's going to be developed and approved in my son's lifetime. And that's the hope. That's the hope that parents and patients and loved ones, there isn't anyone in the world, there isn't, Lowell, there isn't anyone listening to your podcast that doesn't know or love somebody that right now is experiencing an unmet medical need or has died from an unmet medical need. Cancer's affected everybody. It's ubiquitous, right? So all these rare genetic disorders, and I like to talk about rare genetic disorders. In February, it'll be Rare Disease Day on February 28th. There's over 9,000 rare diseases right now affecting millions of people around the world. When you add all them up, that's not rare at all. They're very common. So, I mean, as we live in this day and age, and we talked about it being the platinum age and the good age, there are so many good things happening but also because of the advancement in diagnosis and the advancement in diagnostics, we were able to di diagnose things that in the years past, these diseases were still around. People just died from it. We do a better job diagnosing it. Now people say, well, it's so expensive treating all these diseases. Let's talk about our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I really think we need to talk about our healthcare system because it isn't a healthcare system. I call it a sick care system. Because our sick care system was developed in the 1950s for therapies and treatments that existed in the 1950s. It was designed to pay people to take their blood pressure med or their cholesterol med or their insulin that they'll be on for the rest of their life. Chronic therapies. So now we have therapies that people call, I'm using air quotes, expensive therapies. I call them high value therapies. They may cost more up front, but they save the system boatloads of money. There's no better way to save money in a healthcare system than to cure somebody's disease and keep them out of a hospital and to keep them off transplant lists and to keep them out of surgery and to put them back at work keep them healthy so that they can work and live and enjoy life and pay taxes to our government because they're productive members of society, not people that are sick and fighting illness every single day. I think the, there was a figure that came out where it's like we, we waste, not, not waste, but in the sense like, you know, like someone's fault, but the like people calling in sick, like being sick, caught, like is like several billion dollars in wasted Product productivity, just like not being able to go into work, unable to work, like costs billions of dollars on that front. But I, I, I agree with you on another point. Is I, don't, I agree with everything you say. I wish there was things we could disagree on so we could debate. Well, them. let's just argue about something for no reason after. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm uh, fine with arguing. <laughs> the, yeah, as long as it's you know in a nice way. But the, healthy debate, healthy, respectful debate. Yeah, I love that. The, I do too. The so I. I think it's interesting that you weren't allowed to say cure when I think, I think it's like, even if you can't get to cure, like that one makes people dream. Like, how can we get there? And it's like, if you shoot for the, there's like this thing on the wall of my school where it said, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. And so yeah. it's like, so if you, if you shoot for a cure, 
And instead, you prolong someone's life, you reduce their suffering. I mean, it's sure you you failed at re- hitting the moon, but you also succeeded at making that person's life better. So it, I, I I see that sometimes people want you to be more realistic, but at the same time, like you have people nowadays, like Elon Musk will say like, oh, we're going to go to Mars. And people are like, I don't know if we can do that. But then everyone works to make that happen. And if it doesn't work, we have these new technologies coming about because of it. So I like that type of thinking. Like, is it, you know, accurate? Like sometimes you're not going to make it, but just think of how it makes people dream. Yeah. I think that's the big thing. It's like sometimes the people, no one's going to dream about what's realistic. They're going to dream about like how to get somewhere that hasn't been there before. Because we're all explorers as a people. Even like little kids, I think we're scientists. And like some somewhere between like K through 12 system, we stop being scientists. But even how a little kid will just slowly start like tasting things to like, yeah. figure out the world. Like we're all scientists. And I think science is the, like the bedrock for exploration. Cause if you didn't have good science, like um, you end up getting lost all the time. Cause you don't know like what the stars mean and you sure. have to these things out. But so once again, those are just things that I, I definitely agree with you on. The, is there other things that we could be doing better? Like in, in the sense that, like buying a cure or, or trying to build a system of innovation. Cause I, I know a couple of years ago, we, in the United States, we keep cutting funding where like um, people have to stop doing as much research. I was, I was reading about this a couple of years ago. Maybe we kept, yeah. picked it back up. It's been a while since I've read this, but is, are the things we can do on a local level to make it easier for innovation to happen on like a, like a person to person basis, other than maybe getting attached to these organizations, help giving a little bit, and then it goes along while. Like, yeah, well, well, let me tell you why. Massachusetts is the best place in the world for the life sciences. It's mm-hmm. undisputed. And the reason that is, in my opinion, and I think I'm 100% correct, because for the last decade, I've been directly involved with trying to make Massachusetts the best place in the world for biotech life sciences. Six years ago, we were, we were one of the top five clusters. Now, today, we're undisputed, the best place in the world. So people say, why? I travel all over the country, all over the world, and people say, how did this happen? The way it happened in Lowell is because we have world-class academic medical centers and academic institutions, right? 122 colleges and universities. We have a robust life sciences industry. And then the third thing is we have government in Massachusetts that is committed to being a partner. So when you have academia, industry, and government truly working together, you can solve any problem, any problem. Even if it's, you know, public transportation, affordable housing, all of these tricky issues that as a society we need to nail, we're working on it in Massachusetts. And it doesn't matter whether it's Democrats or Republicans. Have you noticed that? We have a Democratic House and Senate. We have a Republican governor. Everybody works well together. I can tell you, we're the only place in the country that that is happening right now. Unfortunately for me, I have to spend quite a bit of time down in Washington, D.C., because as you can imagine, state government has a lot of say whether or not we're going to be good or not good at innovation. The federal government has a lot more say, okay? A lot more to say in what we're going to do. So if I could see, this dysfunction and the bipartisan fighting and lack of movement go away and be more like Massachusetts, the world would be a better place. The, 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 the patients of the world would have so much more hope and promise. 
I mean, that's why we're so good in Massachusetts. You know, so in, in that being said, Lowell, it's so important that, you know, you talk about hope. You talked about stretch goals, really. In a way, we should be shooting. Anything else is unacceptable. Anything else is really, in my opinion, un-American, right? We bear the burden of solving the most difficult problems because we're one of the most we're the most advanced nation in the world, right? That's a, that's what we got to do. So I say, welcome. Let's welcome that challenge, and and you know, with the you know, with the the influence that we have comes the responsibility. It's our responsibility to invest more. You talked about the the cut in NIH fund. Government has cut back on NIH funding. And I think that that, you know, is, you know, it's foolish. It's foolish from an economic standpoint. Never mind foolish because it's it's the wrong thing to do. If you want to make the business decision behind it, if our government spent more early stage investment dollars in fighting things like infection, fighting things like vaccines, fighting, uh, you know, any possibility of pandemic flus coming our way, fighting Alzheimer's. All, if we could come up with a therapy that would stave off the symptoms of Alzheimer's by just a decade, we'd solve the national debt crisis. Think of the cost to society and to government for us caring for our elders that are experiencing Alzheimer's. We're never going to stop caring for these people because, again, that's un-American. Well, let's flip it on its head. Let's stop thinking about the iron lung and start thinking about the cure for polio. Let's cure Alzheimer's. It may take upfront investment and a lot of money to do it, but it will be huge cost savings down the line. So when government stops early stage investment, you know, it take, it's that NIH funding that comes up with the ideas that ultimately will become commercial. A company will license it and spend the, you know, billions of dollars and years of risk to get it to the finish line. But that early stage science is the responsibility of government. The, the NASA, I think during the Apollo program, for every $1 that was put in to that program, and I think at one point in time it was like 13% of our GDP, we got like $11 back. That's the thing that I think most people don't realize. It's like this basic level research, there are a lot, like for all we invest into it, there is a great return on investment. And I think sometimes people think, well, let's just, let's only put the money towards the big stuff. CRISPR that was invented by Dr. Duaten and a couple other people, like, they didn't see that coming. They were like, oh, this is kind of weird. Let's dig into this. And, That's right. And it was, they didn't have big, they didn't have a huge, you know, $20 million grant to develop it. They had a, this, this, you know, a smaller grant. And they were just off in, the, in this lab and no one knew about them. But now everyone's heard of CRISPR. Everyone's heard of the potential of it. But so that like you need like a good blanket level of research going on for these fundamental research to, or else we won't find these things. And then in that investing, we get like this great return on investment just from an economic standpoint and for like life, the improvement on our lives. But a question I have, and this is just because of like how good you are as a speaker. I'm curious. There's a person I, I would quote where he, he said, it's from a, a, from a book, but he says like to, 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 be, to speak requires a voice, but to, to listen means you need to be heard. I don't know, it's like one of those like, uh, it's like from Asia or something. I'm not, it's like parsing it, but like, have you always been able 
to speak well like how have you have you always had like this voice because I, I like I imagine it's hard to ignore you like you're a very good speaker like you're passionate <laughs> I'm curious, you. as someone who's like young and has young listeners listening like youngish listeners like getting started like first second third job um wanting to make a progression like how how do you get that sense of ownership that i think in, in your life has really propelled you forward like always kind of knowing this is the right way to go about it hmm. and then being able to like communicate that it's not just like i think a lot of people know like hey this would be good but then it's also making sure they're being heard like you go down to washington dc i go to washington go down to washington dc Maybe people would ignore me. I don't know. I'd probably talk to someone just because I'm loquacious. But for some people, they feel like they'd be ignored. But like you go down there, you're not ignored. So I'm just curious, like how how have you done that? Like how how do you? I I, I appreciate this. I you're the first person to ever ask me that question, and I can't think of the last time I've been stumped. So I'm not going to let you stump me. I'm going to answer it as raw as I can. Mm-hmm. And no, I I. I was, I always, I haven't always been this, I, I get, I appreciate the compliment that you gave me. And I, I think the reason I'm so willing to be passionate, tactfully aggressive, and I am knowledgeable about, well, I'm very confident in what I have to say. And I will argue with, debate with, have a a real civil discord, obviously, with anybody who's willing to argue. And we we can even get into some more um, provocative issues, if you want, around drug pricing and things like that, if you'd like, because I'll argue with anyone about it. I'll have the discussion because, and going back to when I was younger, before I had kids and when I was younger and growing up in my career, now, I wasn't as confident. I wasn't as aggressive. I wasn't as bullish. And I definitely wasn't as, as articulate or eloquent. And I will argue, I still have a horrible Boston accent. So a lot of times people don't even understand what I'm saying. I wish I could speak English better, but I'm from Boston, so I can't help that. But when you, for me, I think the, the you know, I turned the corner when I had a kid that was sick. It's amazing what a parent will do to save the lives of their kid. So for me, I'll get as aggressive as I need to be. I'm gonna be as confident as I need to be. I'm not afraid to make a mistake. So I say to young people, don't sit back and say nothing because you think you might embarrass yourself or make a mistake or, oh, I might not say the right thing. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Say it and be it. And if for me, I probably wouldn't have had that confidence if life didn't present me with the challenges that it has because there isn't anyone in the world I won't argue with or challenge if I think that especially politicians you know and I was one so I get it right if somebody's going to make a bad decision because they think it might be politically popular because we as a society hasn't done a good enough job educating the public which is challenging I'll go to war with you I'll introduce them to every single person with cystic fibrosis that lives in their district, then I'll bring in everybody that has ALS, then everybody that has Alzheimer's, everybody that has Parkinson's, and we'll go. I'll send them uh, obituaries from people that have died in their district because we didn't have adequate health care treatments for them or therapies. And, and let's see who wins that argument. Because too often, people are lazy. And it's easy to say, oh, drugs are too expensive. We can't afford it. 
well, if we had good drugs and good therapies, it saves money. Let's just change the system. But people are too lazy and people aren't willing to do the work. And to me, that's unacceptable. And I'm not, I, I won't stand for it. Is it, is it, I don't know, I don't want to get in trouble for this, but like, is it laziness or, I was reading this book called Keys to Power where basic premise is like you have a couple of people that keep you in power and like you basically give them like kickbacks so that they get nice and fat and then they take their resources and keep keep you you know on top and no one like knifing you in the back. It works better as an example for monarchies where like there's like a military guy, keep that guy happy. There's like someone who handles like bringing the money, keep that guy happy. But like you can ignore a lot of people. But in America, like the news is so hard to like parse down like what's actually happening versus what's being inflamed. So I'm curious, like, is it is it laziness or is it like some element of like they don't want to have those type of conversations because those people support them and keep them being reelected? And at the same, I guess it's like a three part question where it's like, is is it really is it one or the other? And then I guess the follow up on that is like, how can people discern what's really going on from what's being inflamed? Because I think like the, the news is very hard to figure out like. Like, I feel like you have to read, like, five things just to figure out, like, what the factual evidence of what went on. And then you have to, like, kind of, like, guess, at, like, what the reasons were. But maybe, like, in time, I'll get better at that. But, like, is it is it laziness or is it, like, they, they're being supported by these these initiatives and companies that are contrarian to those ideas that you hold? And so it's hard. It, it's more like they have, like, selfish reasons for not wanting to change. Because if they change and those people won't make money, then they don't they're not more as likely to stay in power through the funding mechanisms and then like that type of cycle. So as someone who's done those things, I'm just curious, like, is it, is it, is it laziness or I guess I've just restated the question three times, but like, is it, is it truly laziness or is there like other factors like that? that I mean, I think you could call it, you know, some people might be lazy. Some people might be, you know, fat and happy, right? You allude to that's an expression that comes from, Hey, if people financially are all set, they don't want to change anything. Yeah. Right. And that's to the, the example that you alluded to earlier. And then there's clutter. Right. Who do you know what to what do you believe when and how? I mean, with all the different media outlets that we have now and, and combined with all the different uh, platforms, it's very difficult to know what's real and what isn't. So uh, maybe it's not laziness, but it's it, it, it's it's people have not done a good enough job. OK, the biopharma industry hasn't done a good enough job educating the public as to what we really do. We're trying to invent therapies that keep you healthy, well, and alive. We don't do that. Why do, uh, when I say people are lazy, let's take different industries. Like for too long, the pharma industry, the insurance industry, and the providers. So you have the payers, the providers, and the innovators. Instead of trying to come up with real solutions, to the entire healthcare system, everybody points a finger at everyone else. Oh, the insurance company, you know, the pharma companies will say the insurance companies are shifting costs to the patients. The insurance companies are saying pharmaceutical drugs are too expensive and the price is rising quicker than we can afford. The hospitals are saying, you know, you know, we can't, we're not making enough money, right? So everyone's doing this when in reality we all need to sit down and talk about what that common denominator is the common denominator that payers biopharma companies and providers meaning hospitals and doctors the common denominator that we all care about is a sick person the patient so if we put the patient in the middle of all of these discussions and do what's best for the patient who is also the consumer by the way the customer 
we can solve these problems. Like when, when people say that drugs are too expensive, I'll use my son as an example, and I hope you don't mind that I'm getting real personal here, but they, these Vertex drugs that are approved, they cost between $250,000 and $300,000 a year. So people say, that's expensive. Those are too expensive. Well, my kid's not on those drugs. I'd like you to take a look at what he cost right now with hospitalizations, takes between 50 and 100 pills a day, three different nebulizers a day, chest physical therapy with a therapist that comes in the house every day, and he ultimately needs a liver transplant. Do you know how much all that costs in hospitalizations, therapy, chronic pills? So let's say he gets on that $300,000, and I'm just using, I'm not using exact prices here, and I don't work for Vertex or anyone else. I'm just speaking as a dad, throwing stuff out there. That was my little disclaimer. So <laughs> when, you, when you look at, if he were on that drug, he wouldn't be in the hospital. In theory, he wouldn't need a liver transplant. He wouldn't be taking all those other drugs. Does anybody account for the costs that are saved? Or do they just say, oh my God, there's a new drug that costs $300,000. Pharmaceutical products are only 14% of the overall cost of healthcare. That's the same percentage as it was in 1958. It's a bigger number, mm -hmm. but yeah, as that number gets bigger, so is the rest of the uh, percentage of the cost of healthcare is a much bigger number. I could argue, let's make drugs free. All right, everybody's saying drugs are too expensive. Prescription drugs are too expensive. Everybody in leadership and government will say that because it seems to sit well with people that are shopping in the grocery store. You know, I've heard politicians say Mrs. Smith was deciding between her loaf of bread or getting her heart medication. Come on, is that really happening? People say that because it's scare tactics. It's scare tactics. And the reality of this is, let's say the drugs were free, okay? Mm -hmm. Horrible for sick people because you're never going to have a new drug. People aren't going to be incentivized to invent new therapies. So the whole biopharma industry will go out of business. We'll have the same drugs in perpetuity for what we have now, and they're free. So you save 14% of the overall cost of healthcare. Is that even going to solve the problem? No. No. So why are pharmaceutical drugs, if it's 14% of the overall cost of healthcare, why is it getting 90% of the attention? Because the other industries are just tossing bombs. Because that will cause that, you know, paralysis by analysis. Let's just keep tossing bombs and blaming each other. And government will never do anything to fix it. And everybody can continue to go on their merry way and get compensated and be happy and then not solving the problem. And I think as a citizen, as an individual, and as a leader of the biopharma industry, I'm not willing to accept it anymore. I'm sick of it. Let's come up with solutions. In Massachusetts, we've hired NEHI, to nonprofit think tank, to pull the insurance companies, the biopharma companies, and the providers together to work out different plans that we can bring to government, like value-based contracting. Let's only pay drug companies based on the value that they bring to the system. Basically, you get paid a lot if you save a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Why don't we do that? Well, we need government to allow us to do it. These are highly regulated industries. So in Massachusetts, we're working on these programs. So hopefully next year and the year after, we can change the law in Massachusetts and we can bring these ideas that industry comes up with to our leaders in government to enact them. If we don't do anything, 
government's going to be forced to make changes, and the healthcare industry is too complicated for lay people who are public servants in government to understand and fix. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to get it right. I think, I think what I'm hearing is the. It's like everyone's suffering from the same issue where they're they're looking at the symptoms instead of the cause. And that was, that was something that that was recently pointed out to me is that how often we look at symptoms. Like we, we even describe the illnesses based on the symptoms instead of like the actual mechanisms that are causing yeah. the issue. It's like, it's like, wow. It, but it, I think, I think it's like, we all are on, like we all were taught wrong. Even the people who are running these pharma, the pharma insurance government, the people listening in at home, it's like we all were taught wrong. And so it's kind of like, how do, how can you rebuild the wheel using a wheel that's broken? Like does everyone just like, I guess finding a third party whose job is to like think tank and, and think in a different way to, to devise a new system. It's how you do that. But it's, it seems like the, 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 the issue is like uniform, like on all parties are suffering from it. And then they get defensive and just kind of start pointing the fingers. And so then you can come in with like third party and be like, you know, like an impartial third party, which is really helpful so that they're not biased. Hopefully. That's right. Yeah. It has to be. Mm-hmm. It has to be. And you're right. And, and again, maybe lazy wasn't the right word that I used earlier. What, maybe what I should say is that to change a system that's in play, been in place since the 1950s, it's almost like you got to blow it up and rebuild it. Just like looking at, you know, a, a vaccine as opposed to a new iron lung for polio, right? you got to blow it up and rebuild it. And that's a lot of work for a lot of different people. So it means that these three very important industries need to get together because think about it. I say this to my colleagues that I work with in the hospital industry and in the insurance payer industry. It needs to work for everybody. If hospitals go out of business, patients aren't going to win. If insurance companies go out of business, patients aren't going to win. If biopharma companies can't innovate new products, the patients aren't going to win. We all need, it's like a symbiotic relationship, right? It needs to be mutually beneficial amongst those three parties, and we need to work. And how do you do, how do you make things like that happen? Through leadership, right? It takes leaders to step up and say, we're not going to point the finger anymore. We're going to solve the problems and we're going to bring these solutions to our partners in government. Our partners in government will then enact them. And then we have to do it. We have to do it. And again, Lowell, you know, I'm not trying, I don't have all the answers. I'm not even very smart, right? I, I try to listen and try to figure out and solve problems. But why am I so hell bent on this? Why am I so passionate? Because this is my kid. And there isn't anyone out there listening, like I said earlier, that doesn't have a story like mine. Everybody. Everybody does. So let's do it. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about what would, like uh, with your son's situation, if he had the medicine versus not having the medicine, I think a liver transplant is like a, like half a million dollars. Like, oh, not, yeah, actually, yeah. If you do a living donor, it's a, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. It's a lot more than that. Is it? So when it comes to like building like a new system, I, I was, I think there was a theory I was reading uh, it could have been a textbook, so you never know if these are real. But the that like a government institution, the government institutions once they exist can never be truly destroyed. They get repurposed. Like uh, I think Homeland Security used to be like something else. Like Department of Defense, and before that it was like something else. Like it, like the departments never really go away. They just like change and have like different mechanisms. Yeah, they get tweaked. They get tweaked and morphed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, 
And at the, at the same time, I would, um, there's a great book about how habits, like the best way to build a new habit is to use an existing habit to like launch off of. So you, you mentioned that like you almost have to like destroy it to rebuild it. Is there, is there also a thought process behind like retooling what exists to, to like launch off of like in the, in the same analogy as like using an existing yes. habit? Yeah. Want me to give you an example? Yeah. Okay. We, as an industry, invented a therapy that cures hepatitis C. Okay, you remember that? A couple of years ago, there's a new drug that literally can eradicate hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is, I mean, it's an epidemic. There's so many costs associated, whether it's hospitalizations, liver transplants, lack of productivity, and lack of quality of life, et cetera. The industry invents a therapy, it comes out, it wasn't cheap. I think when it first came out, it was 75 or $80,000. The problem was if this was a rare genetic disorder and there were just a few people that had it, it wouldn't have even been a blip on the radar screen. The problem was there was such a high unmet need, mm -hmm. okay? You would think that we do cartwheels when unmet high unmet medical needs are being met but no everyone panics because private insurers couldn't take the hit and then public payers like medicare medicaid a lot of these people would end up on public payer systems uh, because of their illness how are these state governments going to afford you know this big bolus of patients that needed these therapies so that causes this big problem. So instead of celebrating the fact that we're going to eradicate a disease, we're saying, oh my goodness, this is horrible. It's too expensive. The drug did come down. The price came down when more com competition came into play. So first and foremost, I'm a capitalist. I always push for competition because when there's comp competitive products, price will come down. And that did happen. So then let's say it's still an issue you know, and I think a lot, something that keeps me up at night is what if we do find a, a therapy for Alzheimer's? How the heck are we going to pay for that? Okay. But I'll come back to that. So now we're on hepatitis C and I hope I'm not boring you with this, but this no. is a good example of how we can morph an existing system. Mm -hmm. It became not a price issue, a price of the drug. It became a financing issue because a private payer would say to you, why should I have to pay to cure the hepatitis C? Chances are that person is gonna be on another system in a couple of years. Think of how often people move from health plans. Mm -hmm. The portability of their, their uh, constituency is, it's very high, people move around. So if it's a one-time upfront cost, why should I have to pay it when they're gonna go be healthy on someone else's tab? Okay, so that's that's an issue. All right, well, how do we change that? Let's take the existing ish, the existing system, but let's allow a ten-year payment plan for a drug, and there's portability with that patient if they move from plan to plan or from private payer, uh, public payer onto private payer. Maybe we can keep that price tag with the person for five or ten years. Well, right now that's not legal. But we could morph and tweak the existing public and private payer system so that things like pooling people and having portability or mobility, whatever the right word will be, we can do that. But there has to be an appetite for people to accept change. The pharma industry has to be willing to say, 
okay, am I willing to get paid over 10 years instead of all the money up front? Well, yeah, that's a compromise. Do the private payers, are they going to be willing to say, okay, I'm willing to pool with uh, and share information with other insurers? Yeah, that's a compromise. You have to be willing to do it. And if we don't do something like this, Lowell, you have said CRISPR technology twice. We talk about gene therapy, CRISPR technology, um, Cas9 uh, therapies, right? We're working on cures. I tell the gene therapy companies that are members of MassBio, hey, why are you even doing it? No one's going to be able to pay for it in the existing system. So if we don't have a way of doing value-based payment contracts where, okay, we'll pay a million dollars for that cure for blindness, but what if the person goes blind again in two years? Is the company going to give the money back? To the insurance company? Well, I would argue we should allow them. To, that's the way it should be, right? But again, we need to change the system. That's a changes to the existing system. I couldn't agree with you more. It's when, when I when it's very difficult to blow up anything in government and get rid of it for good and then start from scratch. It's almost like you got to uh, bob and weave and make changes to the system that exists. But those are just two examples uh, right now on things that we need to do immediately. Mm -hmm. I think hepatitis, I, I'm a history fan, so I think hepatitis came around, like I think the first hepatitis case in the in Europe happened right after Christopher Columbus came back from the New World. Or, uh, that might have been syphilis. I don't know. But the, I always think of like a historical context whenever I hear things. But that makes sense. I didn't, I don't know, in most businesses, you're able to like amateurize a cost over several years. Like if I bought like a tractor, I'm from a farm, so I can use this analogy. So yeah. I bought a tractor, I you would not pay, like most tractors are like a quarter million dollars to like a million dollars. Like they're very expensive. So you don't pay that all at once. You pay like, you know, percentage and then you slowly pay it off over the years. Healthcare isn't that way. Like insurance companies can't do that. I, I was sick, but I always just paid things in full. So, or I just paid it like a debt, like normal debt. But I, I guess I never really thought about whether or not they could do that, like transfer it around if I get, got a different plan. No, because it's, it's that insurance company is responsible for that bill at that time. There's no ability if you leave to a different. And it's funny, that's why insurance companies prefer to have healthy people in their mix because then they're making money, right? It's sick people that cost them money. So if you could have some portability like that, there'd be less risk for the insurance companies and you could spread that cost out. And you're right. I mean, think about it. It, when the hep C situation, it wasn't the cost of the drug. It was a financing thing. And it's the same way hey, every, people go and buy houses, but you don't pay for them all at once. Yeah. You can mortgage it. Why don't we have an ability to do that in healthcare? care? Well, it doesn't work in the existing sick care system. So let's change it. Let's change it. Could, could one insurance company buy customers of another insurance company? This is like completely out of nowhere. I was just thinking like if there are, if there are customers – that make them more money and then customers that have like amateurized debt you'd kind of like be like hey i want you on my plan and then like no and, that, and that's why government regulates it so that you can't do that mm -hmm. it's a highly regulated industry but i mean it's so regulated that there are things that we want to do to save money that government won't allow us to do and those are some of the changes that we want to make mm -hmm. uh, i was just thinking if, if i was an insurance company i'd buy a bunch of people that are going to be healthy in like a year and then get them, I don't know. But anyways, the one question I definitely wanted to ask because we're in the last 15 minutes is, um, especially with you, there's, I think if you looked at your bio, there's like leadership and development, like just repeated. Also a lot of awards. Like you've definitely done a lot of great things. I think, I think the one that you probably deserve the most is like follow of the year um, based on every, like the trajectory and change in your life. But um, 
when I think of leadership and, and development, I think of like Eisenhower and like the logistics of preparing for D-Day. And so I'm curious, what, what, at the level that you're at, with what you get to do, what, what is leadership actually like? And if, if there's like an example of something you're working on now that we could walk through and see your thought process, because going back to the first question I asked or, or, or brought up about Einstein and uh, Captain Polio, uh, <laughs> inventor of the polio vaccine, is uh, like identifying the right question. And I'm, I'm very curious to, to learn how you think and how you think of leadership and then how you go about executing on that vision since like you, you operate on a different level than I do so that I can then steal it for myself and then think better. Well, for, for me, the, the first rule of leadership for me personally is lead by example, mm-hmm. okay? When I had a kid that was sick, I could sit back and wait for a doctor to do something or I could get involved and try to do something myself. So for me, example, is everything. You're not going to ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. I would never do that. Okay. And in, 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 when I think of leadership, it's, it's by always trying to do the next right thing. And, you know, I can use all sorts of examples, but something that I'm really proud of as an industry, how we lead is around things like immigration. Okay. And diversity and inclusion. Okay, couple issues. What does that have to do with science and investing in inventing a drug? One would think nothing. I would say you couldn't be more wrong because when you're trying to solve any problem, it is a scientific fact that the more diverse the group trying to solve the problem, the better the outcome will be. So, I mean, think back in the day to, you know, skunk work. So what NASA will do when there's problems, right? They want to make sure they have an engineer, a, a biochemist, a this, a that. You want everything that you can get. A carpenter, right? You always have to have a carpenter in the room. Right? You want to make sure that you have this diverse group so that you can solve that problem. Well, I would argue that the most difficult problem to solve in the world is, is curing a disease. It's hard. It's really hard. So why wouldn't we want the best and brightest people from every country in the world, no matter where they're from? They're all welcome here in Massachusetts. I don't believe in any of these immigration reforms and restrictions. Everybody should be welcome here. Everyone in our country is an immigrant from somewhere. And the reason Boston has become such a hub for innovation is because they do attract, you know, places like Harvard and MIT and UMass, the best and brightest minds from all over the world. And I'm like, as I say in Massachusetts, I'm wicked proud of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll fight anyone again on that issue. Why do we promote diversity and inclusion? Again, the same reason. It doesn't have to be people that just look like me or you to solve these problems. You want people from all different backgrounds to solve these problems. And people will, and, and, and I've found that when an industry as influential as the biopharma industry is in Massachusetts, I would argue that MassBio is, and I'm not just saying this because I work here, but we're one of the most influential trade associations, if not the most in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the United States. If we don't utilize our influence to affect positive change, we're not leading and we're being irresponsible. You know, with that influence comes the responsibility to make positive change. And for me, 
I've always said to people around here, if you want to change, I say it to my own kids, you know, it's like, if you want to change how things are, you have to change how things are done, right? I mean, insanity is when you just keep doing the same old thing and you expect the results to be different. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And when life throws you a curveball, right, you can duck down and curl up into the fetal position or you can adapt and overcome. Right. Maybe that comes from a background of training, you know, where I went to the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, did some time in the Naval Reserve. Maybe that's a military thing. I, I don't know. But you got to adapt and overcome in everything that you do because it's not going to be easy. And plus, it's a job. I tell this to the millennials a lot. Right. When people talk about, well, it's a job. Well, one, find something that you can be passionate about. Because then you'll always be happy because you're passionate about what you do. But don't expect it to always be fun. You're getting paid for it. That's why you're getting paid because it isn't fun. If it was fun, you'd be paying us, right? And when you go to a movie, you pay them because that's fun. When you go to work, they're paying you. It's not always fun. But make sure you feel that at the end of the day, when you go home, you can sit down or you know have a beverage or look in the mirror and say, you know, I did something really good today, you know, and if you can do all that, that's how I gauge success too. If you can find a job doing something that, you know, you're very passionate about and, you know, I get, what I do at my job right now is a lot of the stuff I did for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation as a volunteer. So I took stuff that I did as a volunteer and now it's my career and I get paid for it. To me, I don't care if you make, if you make $10,000 a year and you're happy, that's a hell of a lot better than making $10 million a year and being unhappy, right? Success is about feeling good about what you do. So hopefully, Lowell, that you, you feel real good about what you do because it's, uh, it's clearly fun. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I, I agree with you. Once again, I wish we, I disagree with you more, but the, I, think it's, I think it's about finding like the profitable passion. And then, and then like, I, think, I think sometimes people think, it should be easy, like everything they do, but it's like, and then I'll, like, I'll, I'll talk to some of my friends and they'll say, hey, well, I'm doing these things. I'm not getting promoted. And I'll be like, okay, walk me through what you're doing. And they'll basically, and I'll say, okay, now what, what's your job again? And they'll, they'll, it's exactly what they were already doing. So they, if their job was to do A, B, and C, they were doing A, B, and C. It's like, all right, well, to be, to be promoted, you have to do D or E or F. And so why aren't you doing those things? There's like, well, I'm not paid to do those things. It's like, well, you don't have to do it for them. If you feel like you don't want to do more work for them, go find someone to volunteer with. Like uh, I, I volunteer for non nonprofits all the time. And it, it's just good to do. But at the same time, you get to do, and especially with the online world, you can find a non-profit that needs your help answering phone calls so that someone can, you know, sit with patients who, you know, like a hospice or something. Absolutely. There's, there's always these ways. But like, if you're not, if you're not doing it at least like 15% more than what you like then like a normal week like let's say you have like a 40 hour week and that's like very hard like that's like like a fixed thing if you're doing like 15 percent more than that like i don't think you should really be progressing all that fast like you're not really gaining any skills you're, you're doing what they pay you to do you're not doing anything that should get you any anything new coming in you know it's like if i pay you to like mow the lawn and all you do is mow the lawn it's like you're never going to be really good at landscaping unless you think about learning about how to design the, the you know the lawn in a really nice way, and then it improves the property values of the person. And absolutely, yeah. pride. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so I think I couldn't give you more. Hey, life is like anything; you only get out of it what you put into it. Mm -hmm. But it, I think that's it's that seems to be one of the common things that I know as millennials, where it's like it's like one part 
like when it's hard, they don't understand like that hard part's a part of it. It's like, it's meant to be hard because if it wasn't hard, then everyone would be doing it. Then when you do it, someone would be easy, easily could come in at a dollar less and knock you out. And then you won't have the job anymore. It's like, it should be something that's stimulating, something that has value and something hard enough where like, you don't know if you can do it so that you're pushing yourself to get to a higher level. And you know, you got to take care of yourself, of course. So like, that's, that's what the cool thing about having online things. Like I think there's a conservation X lab where they have like have an online portal where literally people can help out with conservation where they will have like people saying, Hey, I have these skills and I'd like to help out. And then a bunch of people are like, Oh, we're working on this project. We need people with admin skills or we need people who know how to sell things or talk to people who are, or answer emails. Like I answer so many emails a day. I wish someone would do that for me, but like, absolutely. So uh, but they're, they're, you can we, come over to mass bio start tomorrow and respond to all my emails if you want. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it might be fun. It'd be interesting to see how you answer your emails, but, uh, <laughs> but which is all to say, like there are, there are things out there you can be doing. And I, I highlight conservation because it's the thing that like there's conservation in your backyard that you can be doing to make the world a healthier place. And it's one of those things that, I think it's like a random fact about it, but uh, the Mississippi is like the fourth most polluted river in the world. It's like, yeah. we could be doing better than that. Like what are we even doing with the place? Like, but like if you were to restore that, then people could fish there and they could sell the fish. That's like this giant economic opportunity. You bet. You but, bet. Yeah. The one, one, I don't know, interesting fact about Boston, because I was out there recently. I, I met with a couple of people on your team, but the, it's like, there's, there's like a good sense of, like nature and industry that I noted and just like how it's like, cause I'm from Chicago, which I, it's just all industry. It's like all concrete. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I noticed Boston had a much more like balance, which is, which is interesting in itself. Like I was like, like, I think you have like the, one of the world's largest water, water reserves for, for whales, which I like whales. So that's pretty cool. But mm-hmm. at the same time, even with that balance, which most people would think would be a sacrifice, like it wouldn't be growing as well. Boston Boston specifically, I think there was a paper that came out last year or this year where Boston invests more in biotech and healthcare than all of the UK. Like all of the UK, like a city invests more into these sectors to grow them than like an entire nation. And the UK yeah. isn't like, a, I mean, it's, it's an island, but it's not a, a tiny nation. It has like a, a very large GDP. But like it's not, it's just like an interesting thing. Like the things that we can do, they exist. There are things, but I guess like to end on a question that I always like to ask people is what so we kind of went to the known like there are known things that we can do there are mechanisms to to get there but what's something that you don't know that i don't know like not maybe not trouble is the right word but like something that like like an example would be neil degrasse tyson the the guy who people make fun of for destroying pluto he said something that disturbs him is that things in the night there there are things that we will never experience because we exist at this point in time in the universe and in the future like in the future like a, a couple million years like there won't be if people look up and humans exist they won't see other galaxies because things are spreading away and so it, it disturbs him to think that he lives in a time where things could have been up in the, the heavens that we could have been seeing but have no idea that they would be there because it's just like how the universe has expanded so like that disturbs him and he doesn't it's, an, it's impossible to know at this stage so like is there anything that you don't know that bugs you that you wish you could know and maybe someone who's listening be like hey i've that answer like yeah so what 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 don't you know or what's something that like like bugs you that you don't have the answer for wow this is the second time you all you're stumping me with this one to a a degree so let me see how i can dig and answer the question 
the biggest, well, right now in today's day and age, the biggest fear that I have um, for the life sciences industry, you talked about the investment here in Massachusetts, the fact that we've added 12 million square feet of lab space and it's all filled, all the multiplier revenue that's a result of the job growth that we've experienced here in Massachusetts. The thing that scares the daylights out of me the most in Massachusetts is workforce. Like where is the future workforce going to come from? We've grown too quick and transportation. And on an environmentalist standpoint, you know, we have the, one of the oldest public transportation systems in, in the United States. Right. And, and it just isn't working like the, the, the traffic and the congestion and the lack of ability to park in the Cambridge and Boston area. Thank God we're seeing a healthy sprawl, but the thing across the Commonwealth into more suburban environments, but the thing that freaks me out the most is traffic and lack of public transportation. I mean, we got to do something. So that, that scares me. And I think the, the biggest fear that I have you know, that's beyond me and beyond my control and beyond my lifetime is, you know, what's, you know, what's going to be left for my son that has CF, you know, is he going to be alive? I mean, since the day he's been born, my whole goal was to die before him. And I don't want to die prematurely, right? Nobody does, but I want him to live a full life. But, you know, you talked about liver transplant. I talked about liver transplant that's the case. He's always going to have to deal with anti-rejection. You know, once a transplant recipient, always a transplant recipient. And that isn't the best life in the world, right? It's, it's better than being dead, I suppose, but it's still not a great way to live. So I guess the control freak in me that's always been here to try to fight and provide, I worry about what's going to happen. Well, the I think that an exciting thing that you probably know about is the they're working on like, they'll take a tissue cell and they'll grow the organ. That's, yeah. that's uh, yeah, that I cannot wait. Like so many people that don't make it just like sitting on a list somewhere we can make an organ that'll fit them and they don't have to take pills. Like because since it's made of themselves, they don't have to take those pills. And yeah, that's right. It's like an organ on a chip. And that's happening right at the Weiss Institute here in Massachusetts. And I guess this is another area I get frustrated, albeit the science is happening quick. CRISPR, ther CRISPR therapy and, and, and gene therapies, rather, gene therapies coming along again. But I mean, that was happening in the late 80s as well, gene therapies. Why does it take so long? Why can't we do it quicker? Like you can't, as fast as it may seem it's as it's happening in the platinum age of, of you know, science and innovation and life sciences, it, it's not happening fast enough for anybody that's sick. Mm -hmm. It isn't. Yeah. That's frustrating. I can get that. The I think the only reason that's is, it's accelerating a lot right now is that things are becoming more affordable. I think that's that's like that's about it. Like affordability. I think a lot of people are getting more excited about it. The, a person I was talking to was saying that this this biotech and healthcare is very similar to how the computer revolution was, like in the same feeling and tone. Yeah, so, the exponential factor. Yeah, which is, I mean, if that has if that has any indicator, I, I, I look very forward to the next like ten or so years. And that was Robert with uh, Massachusetts Biotech Council. They're doing amazing things. If you're in the Boston area, if you want to be a part of MassBio, anything like that, reach out. This is a great organization. I They invited me out for a little bit. I could talk to their comms director, you know, see what they're about. And pretty much everyone on their staff that I've had contact with is extremely passionate about making the world a better place, extremely passionate about doing things that makes all of our lives better. 
And so I think we all can get behind that. So send them an email. Let me know. Be supportive. Even if you're not in the Boston area, maybe look for your own version of this. And Or if it doesn't exist, maybe build it. You know, I mean, that's a tall order, but I'm sure there are ways of doing that. And if you are interested in doing something like that, let me know and maybe I can figure out how you do that. But all right. So remember to check out the Patreon page, learningwithlol.com and Twitter at Lowell was here for unique and amazing content. We got a huge roster for 2019. And I think every single one of you is going to want to hear it. Remember to subscribe and tell your friends, you know, like the more people listen in, the more feedback I get, the better this can be. And the more people can get excited about this. And ultimately, the better the episodes are going to be. So I hope you guys have a great day and talk to you soon.